Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 192 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm really excited to have Caleb Colton back back on the podcast. Caleb's become a really good friend of mine, and um, many of you, you you'll, you'll know him from his first book, Messy Grace. And actually, he holds the distinction of having one of the most downloaded episodes of all time on this podcast. And that's saying something 192 episodes in. Back on episode 33, in the very first year of the podcast, I had Caleb on where he talked about growing up with gay parents, what it was like when his mom came out as a lesbian and his dad came out as gay, they split up. And he talks about a really honest emotional journey of growing up. He became a Christian, um, has a different view than his parents about life and, and so on, and talks about fighting for the relationship. Really powerful and uh, that story he tells in part in Messy Grace, and he told it to us on a, a great conversation, episode 33. We'll link to that in the show notes. He's back with his new book called God of Tomorrow, and I'm so glad Caleb wrote this because he speaks into the culture. And as you know, we live in a pretty angry time, and Caleb helps bring some sense into this. I love it when people try that. He talks about, you know, do you fight the culture? Do you just surrender and give up? Or do you invest, and how do you invest? And so we talk about that and all the nuances in today's conversation. You're going to love it. Um, so Caleb, welcome back. We're glad you're here. Hey, for those of you who subscribe to the podcast, thank you for doing it. For those of you who share it with others, we are having the best weeks and months we've ever had on this show. And thank you so much for making the journey so rewarding. Uh, I'm having a good time in Australia right now. So I pre-recorded this, all the leaders who have come out in Australia and soon New Zealand Thank you. It's so good to see the global audience. And uh, as usual, spent a lot of time in the United States earlier this year, too. And when you come alongside and just say thanks, it means an awful lot. Love you guys. We're in this together. And um, yeah, subscribers, you know what? We just added John Townsend to the lineup uh, this year. We've got Bobby Grunwald coming on. He just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's Let's talk about some of this stuff that's on my brain. So uh, subscribers, you get that all for free. Plus, we've got Mark Clark coming back, Brian Carter. Um, well, so many more, so many more. So subscribe, you get it all for free every Tuesday and occasionally extra episodes in the month, which is fun. So here's a question for you. What design needs do you have right now? I mean, everything is branded these days. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you know, you got a logo for this ministry. You've got this new program you're starting. It needs a logo. You know, you need a logo, whatever. Or you've got this uh, book you're developing or whatever it is. Well, have you checked out Design Crowd? Because it's a website that helps thought leaders and entrepreneurs outsource or really crowdsource custom logos, even business cards, website design. So here's the deal. Um, they got a VIP offer for you because you're a listener of this podcast. What you do is you you check out designcrowd.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. It's designcrowd.com forward slash carry. They'll give you $100 off and here's how it happens, okay? You just post a brief description of what you want done. They send it out to like literally over half a million designers. Within hours, you get your first designs. You get to pick... And within about a week, you'll get 60 to 100 different people competing on your design, which is crazy. You pick it, you're in control, 
You pick it, you approve payment to the designer, away you go. So that's designcrowd.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And I'd love for you to get your design needs met. We're using them for some projects that we're working on, actually a special celebration coming up. And I want you to check that out. Uh, you can also use the promo code carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and that will get you the same VIP discount because you're a listener. Also, uh, just as a bonus for you guys, um, we're giving away 10 copies of Caleb's new book, God of Tomorrow. Isn't that generous of Caleb? Um, so if you love the interview, which I think you will, head on over to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash C. Newhoff. It's just C. Newhoff. Or just Google an approximation of my name. You'll find it. It's my author page. Uh, my team's going to choose a winner last week. You'll see how to win copies of God of Tomorrow there. So head on over to my Facebook page. Links are in the show notes as well. And finally, something else I'm really excited about that launches next month, my brand new preaching course. I've been preaching for over a quarter of a century. Actually, I've been in public communication. Are you ready for this? Since I was 16 years old in radio. And I share all of my secrets. And, and so does Mark Clark. We got a brand new course coming out together. Uh, Mark leads Village Church in Vancouver, BC, reaching over 5,000 people, four sites, two provinces. It's amazing. He's, he's a super gifted communicator. And then I share my secrets too in a course called The Art of Better Preaching. And you can jump on the wait list right now at theartofbetterpreaching.com. Would love for you to do that because everything drops next month. I want you in on the inside track. And in the meantime, here is my conversation with my friend and author, Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb, welcome back to the podcast. Man, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's awesome to be with you again. Well, you and I have journeyed through an awful lot since you were on, I don't know, we don't really have seasons, but episode 33 at the beginning. And you're very well known these days for Messy Grace and telling the story of growing up with two gay parents and becoming a Christian. And I mean, it's just a powerful, powerful story uh, that God has used many times. But, um, you know, you're more than just your story. And you're one of my favorite people to think through things with. And we track through an awful lot over the last two or three years together, Caleb. And I want to take you back to a day in 2015, and you open up your new book, God of Tomorrow, talking about it, when so many people think everything in American culture changed. Take us to that moment. Well, I was in Cincinnati on that day in the summer of 2015, speaking at an event at a conference. And it was the very last day, and I was getting ready to go over to the main session when my phone started blowing up. And it just so happened that the United States Supreme Court made their declaration on same-sex marriage, which they would be uh, legalizing same-sex marriage in uh, the USA. And people were texting me left and right saying, oh, the, the end has come. I wish your book was out because Messy Grace hadn't been published by then. I, I just can't believe that it's come to that point. And when I went outside to go across the street to the main session, the conference center, it was like a party had already erupted outside. It was like a living metaphor of society. There were people dancing literally in the street. There were already Christians who had their uh, Bibles out who were speaking to people who were celebrating on the street. And it just so happened that weekend there was already a gay pride parade that was planned, which I think that some people knew what the Supreme Court was going to decide. And it was almost like the party, the parade had begun early. And as I was walking over to this conference center, I was just so struck by the scene. And it, as I said, it was really a living metaphor. It was a, it was a picture, a snapshot 
of our society and uh, not just our society, but the division within our society. The division had already manifested itself almost immediately in the street below the hotel. So it was a very mm. sobering day for me. Yeah. And what were the texts saying? I mean, you were getting stuff from both sides that day, were you not? Oh, yeah. I, I was getting texts from both sides, more from uh, the conservative or evangelical Christian side that thought that the world was ending. Um, there were some people who were on the affirming side of same-sex marriage where they were texting me saying, you know, this is great, Con you know, congratulations. I don't know why they were congratulating me, but <laughs> I mean, just, I, I received texts from both sides. Um, and again, uh, it was almost like the extremist positions. You had one extreme who was texting the other extreme that was texting, but people in the middle, uh, were not really texting. And of course, Twitter lit up like nothing else. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I remember that day. And there are some days when people just need to learn to live in that tension of grace and truth like I talk about and just keep their mouth shut for a day and just listen and just not engage online. So that, that you was got, quite... You got called by a reporter that day too, didn't you? Like this unknown number that just came up from California and you're like, well, it could be my wife and kids. I think I'll take that call. Yeah, that was one. I got called by two or three reporters on that day um, just from the LA area that... I had known or they had interviewed me for other stuff, but they knew about Messy Grace coming out. Um, the New York Times article where Matthew and Vines and I kind of did a semi-debate over the interpretation of Scripture had already uh, come out in May, the month before, I believe. So there was a sense in which um, a, lo a lot of people already knew about Messy Grace, even though it wasn't out yet. And so I got calls from reporters and people saying, what's your position on you know, uh, gay marriage. And I would say, well, you know, my position is that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. But at the same time, there is a division between my theology and the civic world as well. And God has given government the authority to be able to uh, make rules and uh, declare law, even at times when it's against his will. So, you know, tried to talk through that the best that I could. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a busy morning, a morning. But what really bothered me about that morning, and one of the reasons why I wrote um, God of Tomorrow, is there was, a, there was a preacher who was coming out of the main session when it ended. And he came up to me, and he had been in one of the workshops that I had done earlier that week, uh, where I was talking about uh, how to engage people in your life who are in same-sex relationships or believe the scripture allows for that. He just put his hand on his shoulder and he just had his, you know, head down and he had this really despairing look on his face and just sad. And he said, well, you tried. I just don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. And I just remember thinking in my head, I mean, is it, I mean, yes, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't, and I still don't agree with the decision, but why the despair? We were mm. acting like the like some decision was made, and God just vacated His throne and says, "I'm out." Like God guys, lost, oh. right? Yeah, yeah. You guys, you guys have just pushed me over the limit now. So I just, I'm, I'm verklempt. That's not what God did, and yet, that's what bothered me so much on that day. I'm like, why is there so much despair? And that's why I wrote God of Tomorrow. 
Yeah, well, and it's not just the whole marriage equality decision and that changing culture. I mean, we seem to be, and Scott Sauls and I have talked about this a couple times on the podcast. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about this just one-on-one. Um, is culture more divided or does it just feel more divided? It just seems to feel angrier than it did, more polarized than it did, uh, more divided than it used to. What, what's your take on that, Caleb? Um, well, I, I would say two things. One, you know, some people have asked me, how did we get to a point in our society where, uh, we had two extremists who are running for president in the United States of America? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just think to myself, that's really a result of what's been brewing for a while. I mean, I even saw it back when I was growing up in the eighties with my mom's community and so on. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing uh, it, the election was not a misnomer. It's, a, it's an example of where our society is at today. You know, I believe in the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is getting worse. And so in a mm-hmm. sense, yes, there is a sense in which uh, we've always been divided as a society. But if history has shown us anything, it's that if we don't manage our values uh, then society gets worse. Everything gets worse. And that's why you had the fall of the Roman Empire. That's why you had the fall of other kingdoms and other civilizations, because while society to some degree is always divided, there is a sense in which it gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm not saying that we are the Roman Empire. I'm not saying that uh, the North American society is anywhere near that. But I am saying that there is a shift further and further away from Judeo-Christian values that I've noticed over the last few years. And in terms of, you you talked about, you know, you saw this in your mom's community, just for people who don't have that background. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was, uh, I was raised by three gay parents. That's usually a conversation stopper <laughs> with new people. But um, my parents got divorced when I was two. They both went into same-sex relationships. My mom and her partner were very activist-oriented. I was raised in the LGBTQ community my whole life, and uh, I eventually became a Christian, uh, went into ministry, and eventually my parents became Christian. But uh, within my mom's community of friends who were very activist-oriented within the gay and lesbian community of the 1980s, at least in Kansas City, there was a lot of this extremism and a lot of this divide that I saw and that even when I was in college and starting out in ministry, I knew it was coming. Um, and it's here and I'm not being, I'm not being a fear monger when I say that I'm not saying everybody's going to get thrown into jail. I'm just saying that we have reached a point where I think that Christians and churches need to really think through intentionally and strategically how they can engage uh, society, how they can engage people who start attending their church, because we need to study culture and society as much as we study ministry, leadership, and theology. I want to go there, Caleb, but before we go there, and you outlined three really helpful options I want to get to, but, well, they're not all helpful, but you outlined three options that you see, yeah. uh, one of which looks very promising. Uh, but before we get there, why do you think Christians have fallen into the inflamed debate category? I mean, I remember thinking back a few years ago 
to the Marriage Equality Weekend. I had never, I've been on Facebook since not quite the beginning, but very early adopter. And I don't think I'd ever seen people as angry or jubilant as I did that weekend. And, you know, that still shows up. I mean, you get like trolls are not just, you know, 38 year old guys living in their parents' basement with no life. I mean, people who you would see in your church on weekends often behave like trolls online or are just really inflamed and angry about whatever. It could be diet, you know, it could be like people just have extreme opinions. Why, why do you think Christians are increasingly embracing that behavior? Because I think that the majority of Christians are afraid. Hmm. I think that, uh, you know, uh, you and I both heard Andy Stanley say that fear is a constant companion in leadership. Yeah. And I think that fear is also a constant companion in life. And fear will always be around us. If there was no fear, there would be no courage. Right. And so fear is always around us. However, I think that when it comes down to fear, I think that we fear two things, that which we do not understand and that which we cannot control. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. Say that again. Say that again. We fear that which we do not understand and that which we cannot control. So when we understand something or we can't control something, we become afraid of it, which, by the way, is why I think that, that Jesus Christ and God is the answer for our problems in society, because he knows all and he has ultimate authority. So he is the answer for our fear. If we're afraid of what we don't know and what we can't control, then God who knows everything and God who has ultimate authority, he is the answer, and he is the one that we need to place our hope and trust in. Uh, But I think that people are really afraid of the future. I think they're afraid of tomorrow because think about it. Tomorrow, we don't know what's going to happen. We have an idea, but we don't know, and we can't really control it. We have little control. We have less control than what we'd like to admit. Really, the only thing – Control is how we react to situations, our character, and how we handle things. Other than that, there's not much else that we can control. And I think the concept of the future and tomorrow is just devastating for some people because when you, when I think about my tomorrows, you know, I've had some really good ones where I've gotten married and had kids and moved to California and so on and so forth. But I've had other really bad tomorrows where found out my cousin was killed or my best friend and roommate was killed in a motorcycle accident or, you know, found out there was a tornado that ripped apart my uncle's house. Um, tomorrow is just a really fearful thing. So you add that to, uh, the whole mix of being afraid of what we don't know and can't control and tomorrow becomes devastating. Thus we try to gain control of things. And when we try to gain control of things, and that's when, that's when we start messing up society. Yeah, and I think what's different, Caleb, is, um, you know, we used to have our five friends that we talked to, and it might be like, I don't like this, or I love this, or whatever your reaction to something could be. But now we can just tell anybody and everybody, and we do. Um, And I don't know whether that always makes it better. I think sometimes that makes it Worse. Oh, and once again, uh, we are recording this in the middle of renovations at Carrie Newhoff World Headquarters, aka my house. So if it sounds like the sky is falling, it feels like it. I don't know what machinery is upstairs, but it's loud today and there's a whole crew at work. So just want to give you 
A heads up on the background noise you may or may not hear on this podcast. Um, let's keep going. Let's talk about the three options, Caleb. In your book, Got It Tomorrow, you outline three options. Um, do you want to outline them for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to engaging with, with society that is constantly changing and moving away from uh, the, the moral ethic and the moral authority that, that Christians have, we really have three options, and I know there are many others, but I think these are the three big bucket options. Number one is aggressively fight with a broken society. And um, in a sense, I can relate with this. I think you can too, because I do believe that we're in a war, uh, in a sense. Uh, you know, we need to stand for what's right. Um, but unfortunately, when we fight a society that's already hurting or broken, we lack empathy, compassion, and we actually end up hurting people. And I think there are a lot of good Christians out there that want to stand for what's right, and they don't mean to hurt people, but they unintentionally do hurt people when they take a combative stance against society. Because um, I don't see Jesus doing that. I don't see Jesus mm -hmm. doing that. I don't even see Paul doing that. Um, you know, I think that combativeness without compassion is always going to be counterproductive. I think that it's an extremist position. And I don't think that extremism has ever led to unity, ever, not once. It's never brought about peace. Extremism has never done that. So give us an example of uh, that first category, aggressively fighting with a broken society. What would be some typical ways you see Christians or just people doing that? Well, I don't know if you've seen the movie Black Panther, or not, not. no it's a fantastic movie and basically um you have the king of this uh made-up country called wakanda and he gets unthroned by uh, a kind of an evil king and the the, the king who is also called the black panther t'challa he uh really wants to take care of wakanda he wants to keep all their advanced resources for themselves he doesn't want to aid other countries he really wants to take care of wakanda and then you have this new king that comes in, and he wants to go out, and he wants to arm all the people who are being oppressed, and he wants to take out all of the people who are doing the oppression, and he wants to completely destroy them. And so you have two extreme examples right here. And by the end of the movie, the Black Panther, T'Challa, takes back control over the, the throne, and he ends up taking more of a middle ground where he's taking care of Wakanda, but he is graciously and lovingly helping other societies move forward in their understanding and compassion. And I think mm. that that is a great example of this uh, aggressively fighting a broken society. Um, I've seen so many Christians look at society as if that society or that group of people are the enemy. They're not yeah. the enemy. We have one enemy. That enemy fell from heaven a long time ago. Too often, when we think shallowly about people, and when we don't think deep about people, it's easy to categorize them and slap labels on them and you know, just define them in our own way so that we can nonchalantly just kind of soar over them and gaze over them. And it becomes easy to talk about them or those or those people, and we make them into the enemy. They're the problem, mm -hmm. that, that whole community, that group of people. Um, and they really, in our minds, become symbolic of the problem. And I think that's an example of how I've seen Christians aggressively fight with a broken society. Um, even marching in gay pride parades with my mom and her partner and, 
seeing Christians hold up signs saying God hates fags. That's an wow. example of what about Facebook posts? I mean, you were talking about the gay marriage decision. There are still people who are not talking to each other because of Facebook posts or things that yeah. were said on Facebook or social media or Twitter. Um, I think that we got to be careful about what we post online as well. Yeah. Are there any uh, guidelines for that? Like what, how do you navigate that? When it comes to posting on social media and online, there are a couple of things that I use as filters. Number one, if I wouldn't say it to a person's face, I'm not going to put it online. Number two, I'm not going to put it online if it doesn't apply to majority of individuals that are following me or that I'm interacting with. And I'm probably not going to put it online unless it leads to encouragement. And I'm not saying we don't handle tough truths, but I just think we have to be very careful about what we put online because there's no context. You can't see body language, facial expressions. You can't hear uh, tones in a person's voice. Um, there's so many people I know who are good people and you talk to them and they're great face to face, but they get behind a keyboard and they just transform into Mr. Hyde. I have no idea how that happens, but they just do. Uh, let me ask you about that because I think those are really good guidelines. And um, I like your third one about what you said. It has to be encouraging to people if it doesn't encourage people. I mean, I think that's so good. And it's so funny because, you know, we all get upset at social media. And I tend not to uh, proactively post anything that I think could be divisive or angry or aggressive or frustrating or unhelpful. But, you know, you always get these these people online who want to shoot back at you, even if you're just trying to help. So I had a podcast guest on, and I guess this one, he's very well-known, mega church pastor, and this one guy didn't like him. And he just made some comment about, you know, this guy opening churches in towns and stealing all the Christians from, from Bible-believing churches. And it really bothered me. I thought, you know, you've never met this guy. You don't know him. You're questioning his motives. I was going to leave it alone. And then normally I do, I just don't engage. And I just thought, nah, I'm going to take this guy on. And, you know, it just didn't go well. And I knew it wasn't going to go well, but you always think that's going to be the exception to the rule. I just said, you probably didn't listen to the episode, um, you know, and whatever. And he's like, why are you picking on me? I'm like, oh, I'm defending my guest. I mean, you know, like you have no idea what this guy has been through. And anyway, but it never went well. I mean, it ended okay. But at the end of the day, do you think you just have to like, What's your strategy for people who like are being combative online? Do you just leave them alone or like, what do you do? Well, two things. One, most of them, I'll leave them alone. Yeah. But two, I do have a strategy and it's something you taught me actually Uh last fall when we were at the orange tour, you and I were talking about something and you said, and I've, and I put this into task with how I deal with people, uh, with how I deal with people online, even. You said, Caleb, maybe you need to ask more questions. You said, I found that most people are three to four questions away from revealing their cards, mm-hmm. really saying what's on their heart or either letting it go. And so when I think about Jesus and all the different questions that he was asked, he was asked hundreds of questions, but he only answered like three or five of them. True. When people ask Jesus a question, he asked them a question right back because I think that when we ask questions it's very disarming you know you don't start a question with why um, you know uh, 
it's one thing I've found that it's better to start a question with what or how. Um, and I think that asking a question helps people to process mm. a little bit more. So I think that when it comes to combative people online, asking more questions would be helpful than, you know, making a statement or taking a defensive posture. Because somebody like that, even though he says, why are you picking on me? Somebody like that, he, he's looking for a fight. And so I think the questions are very disarming and they catch people off guard. And most people don't know how to answer or ask good questions. I should listen to that advisor you had more often. <laughs> Take your own advice, doctor. Yeah, the other, the other expression that I love, I've quoted it many times, but never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. It's just, yeah. it's so true. And I was thinking about that. I'm not calling the guy a pig, but it's like, you know, if he's gunning for a fight, like nobody's going to win this. No one's going to win this. But I forget that from time to time. And uh, just note to self. So option one or A is aggressively fight with a broken society. But there's a second option. Take us through that. That is surrender and fully hop on board with society. Yeah. In other words, that we ignore the tough subjects for the sake of not hurting others. Um, we share God's love, but we subtract the verses in Scripture that would hold us accountable. Um, and I, I find that people in this kind of bucket, they more often than not base their values off, off of society's latest trends uh, instead of the foundation of, of Scripture and the morals and ethics that Scripture lays out. The problem is basing our values off the of society's latest trends is that society is always moving and shaking, but and they're always changing trends, and society is always changing its opinion. So if we base our society and take our cues from society only, we will always be changing our own opinions and our values. And so we can't do that. There's got to be a balance in between aggressively fighting and fully surrendering. Well, and some people would argue that, you know, as the culture changes, we have to change. Um, you know, we've changed our position on many things over the years. What What's your thought about that? Like, is some of the stuff just gravitational pull? And, you know, okay, I'll, I'll pick a, a small one, but the position on alcohol in, in the church has changed in a lot of circles. And there are some who definitely abstain. I get that. Um but it went from almost no Christians drinking to most younger Christians drinking. What, like, and I, I mean, that's not the most contentious by any stretch. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or I think that our theology never changes, but our posture towards society has to change. Hmm. I think that there are orthodox uh, things in Scripture and theologies in Scripture, some of which are based on covenants that God has set up, Others are based on the intrinsic value of human beings. Others are based on the character of God himself. But there are beliefs within Scripture that will never change. But our message and the way how we communicate those things are always evolving, are always changing. I mean, that's why Jesus uh, engaged Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who is a Pharisee. He engaged him with the gospel differently than he did the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The message was exactly the same, but the methodology of how he went about engaging them was completely different. And so I think that our beliefs have to remain solid. I think that the beliefs of Scripture are rooted within the immutable, unchanging character of God. 
and that's why we can have full confidence in, in, in God because he's completely consistent. But our engagement of society and people has always got to change. It's got to be different. Is it fair to say, Caleb, that for option one, aggressively fighting with a broken society, that that's maybe where conservatives land a little too often? And is it also fair to say, or is it just overly simplistic to say that surrendering and hopping on board with society is maybe where sometimes people with a more liberal theology end up? Would you say that's fair or is that like reductionist? Um, I think that's fair to a point. But I think that it, it, we've come to a point where uh, liberals are aggressively fighting with conservatives. Yes. And I think the conservatives are aggressively fighting with liberals. So I think eventually, because both of these are extremist positions, they're, they're the same thing. They're just opposite ends. And eventually yeah. they combine into clashing into one another. You know, the two, the positive and the negative eventually attract each other and they end up clashing. And that's why you have liberals battling against conservatives and you have conservatives raging against liberals. That's eventually what happens. So that's why you're suggesting in God of Tomorrow a third option. Talk to us about the third option, which you hope, you know, you argue pretty strongly we ought to embrace. My third option is this. It's a middle ground. It's investing in society with empathy and conviction. Okay. It, it, it's, it's more about engaging and investing in society. Okay. Uh, like engaging, learning about people so that we can earn the right to invest in them. You know, I make a point in there saying that our differences should drive us to people, not from them. And then once we engage them, we can invest them. And I think that invest is the giving of ourselves to others. I think it's where we sacrifice ourselves to earn the right to speak into others' lives. Uh, we really spend more time building them up. And in this uh, middle ground, we can stand for our values. We can stand against injustice. We can stand for what's right, except we don't have to frame everything in a negative way. We can reframe things in a positive way, like instead of uh, just for sake of argument, um, you know, if a pastor is raging against divorce and saying, you know, divorce this, divorce that, pe you know, people get divorced or sinners and so on, you know, he could say it differently. He can say, you know mm -hmm. what, I'm for healthy families and I'm for healthy marriages and I'm for authenticity in marriages. And I'm for people growing their faith and growing their character in marriage. I think there's a way in which we can stand for what's right and not offend people. Because you've said this before, that the gospel in and of itself is offensive enough, and we can allow it to be offensive, but we don't need to offend people on the way to helping Oops. them see the gospel. The gospel is offensive, but we don't have to be. We'll let God take care of that. You tell the story in your book of John and Marla. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about them? Because I thought that was a really instructive example of option C or three, investing in society with empathy and conviction. Yeah, so John and Marla Latvitalo, uh, great people. John uh, was an elder at the church I served in in Dallas. And uh, I had just gotten done doing the sermon series, encouraging 
the congregation, which was very insider-focused at the time, to start going out into their local community and to their neighborhoods and so on and engaging people. And I challenged our different community groups to go and to start an outreach project or something like that, just something very applicable because that's just something that they hadn't done. And so John and Marla's daughter taught in a school uh, that uh, was primarily filled with people who were uh, not doing well economically. And there were a lot of uh, teenagers who were pregnant and still going to school and so on. And the school had so many pregnant teenagers that they actually had a daycare there. And so John and Marla said, our community group is going to have a spa night for uh, the teenage moms who are pregnant. And so they started by just taking uh, up donations for clothing and diapers and stuff like that. And they started doing it every single month. And three or four years later, they're handing out scholarships for college. They're helping uh, the teenage moms when they have their baby. They're helping them with childcare. They're helping them think through it. They're helping them think about other options other than getting an abortion. They're helping them with uh, clothing and money during the pregnancy. They're walking alongside of them. And they've also began ministering to uh, the baby daddies where they'll have basketball games and that kind of a thing. And it's really taking this idea of something that many Christians would say, oh, that's such a bad sin. And they're like, we're going to reframe it. We're actually going to do it in a way that makes a difference in lives. And there have been so many lives who have been changed and and kids that will be raised in tremendously good families now because of the investment that John and Marla have made. That's pretty inspiring. Uh, You talk in the book about empathy and you quote, I think, from Brene Brown and Reggie Joyner. Why is empathy such an important part of the conversation? And, And in your view, what is empathy? Let's start there. Well, I think Brene Brown and Reggie Joyner have two of the best definitions of empathy that I've seen. Brene Brown says that empathy is feeling with another person. And I just think that's a great definition. Uh, Reggie Joyner says that empathy is pausing your thoughts and feelings uh, for an amount of time to engage with the thoughts and feelings of another person. And I think those two definitions together are just brilliant because empathy is not necessarily uh, affirming what somebody thinks or values, but empathy is listening. It's being fully present. And being fully present in their life so that you can actually continue to invest, you know, you don't, you, you may not be able to walk a mile in somebody's shoes, but you can walk alongside them on the journey. That's what you do. And I think that if we want to be more empathetic and we really want to invest in people, we need to pause our thoughts. We need to listen. Uh, We need to repeat what we hear them saying. We need to acknowledge the, the pain and frustration that they're going through. And I think the most important part of empathy is we need to refuse to fix another person. Hmm. We need to stop trying to do that. And we just need to be present and be a resource for somebody. And I think that I think many people don't want someone to fix them. They just want somebody to be fully present. And I think that earns more investment than anything else. Let me push back on that because some people I can just imagine they're going, well, who's going to call them out on their sin? I mean, I hear that all the time from leaders. They're like, if I don't call these people out, nobody's going to call them out. Aren't you just enabling or being codependent or like creating more of the problem? Well, first of all, I would say, and I think you'd probably agree with me, that there are plenty of people that will call you out on anything right now. 
<laughs> I mean, you right? You put your neck out on the line. Somebody's gladly going to chop it off. Sometimes, and many of the times, those are other people that are going to be in heaven with us, or maybe they right. won't. Or maybe maybe they won't, or maybe we won't. Yeah, or we won't. According we won't. to them, yeah. According to them, yeah. But I mean, so for me, I think to myself, I need to earn the right to speak into somebody's life because the the most difficult conversations that I've had that have been successful have been the ones where the person I'm talking to knows I care about them. They know that I love them. They know that, and, and I've earned that right to speak into their life. And they actually see me as somebody who's a resource. And so when I say something to them, my words carry weight because of the investment. Whereas right. if I told them, don't do this, stop doing this. Well, not only is that kind of legalistic and rule keeping, but there's no compassion, no empathy. I don't know the person. I don't know where they're coming from. You know, I, I don't know how they reach that place. And so therefore, I can't be very helpful to them. And they're not going to hear me. I'm going to become another reason why they've moved further away from Christianity. That's my personal view. Is it that empathy eventually leads to influence? Is that what you're saying? I think, I think empathy eventually leads to influence. I think a lack of empathy will always lead to shame. Oh, wow. Uh, say I more. Think, yeah, I think that it's easy to feel shame in our society. Uh, it's easy to feel uh, wrong for who you are instead of guilt about what you've done. Um, and I think that shame is dangerous. I think that shame is alienating. I think shame makes you believe that you need to isolate yourself from others. Mm-hmm. And I think that the more that we're empathetic, where it allows us to feel with another person. Um, empathy is not the surrender of our beliefs. It is the investment in the life of another person so you can share the gospel with them. Even sharing the gospel with somebody that's already saved and reminding them that God is with you, even during the difficult times of your life. He has not left you. Even when you have stood against him, he is still standing with you. That's a good word. Um, there are people who would say, hey, I just want to go back to the good old days. I want to go back to when it was simpler. I want to go back to when we all shared common values. What do you say to people who have that mentality? I would say the good old days weren't good for everyone. Like, when, when, when do we want to go back to? Do we want to go back to the 80s? You know, I mean, the 80s were great for some people, but do you know how many people the 80s were horrible for? How many people didn't have enough income? How many people uh, weren't protected under the law? How many people uh, were looked down on? How many people um, – there, there, there was great legislation for some people in society, but not for all people in society. Hmm. I mean, do we want to hmm. go back further than that? Where do we want to go to? Do we want to go back to the Leave it to Beaver days? I mean, who could relate with Leave it to Beaver? Could the single mom? Could the single dad, could the African-American family relate with Leave it to Beaver? Uh, what about the Korean-American family? Could they relate to, with Leave it to Beaver? Or the people who are in foster families? I mean, we, we can't go backwards. And, and this is what I've really thought through this. I've thought through this because so many people have this mentality, wanting to go back to the good old days, wanting to go back to when days were bright and when days were great. Well, first of all, unintentionally, that person's being very selfish. Because as I just said, it's not good for everyone. But number two, um, wanting to go backwards. There's no Marty McFly here. There's no time flux capacitor. You know, 
um, it, it's it, it's stepping out of reality, and it unintentionally places some people back into a hurtful season that they've escaped from and they've risen above. And so when we go backwards, not only is it stepping out of reality, but it's unintentionally hurting other people for whom those days were really not all that good. Um, hmm. So instead of instead of wanting to go backwards, I think we need to think, I can't control what happens. Society is going to keep on progressing forwards. So how do I leverage uh, the movement forwards for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of sharing the message of Jesus? I think that's a much better question. How do I leverage what's happening now instead of trying to control so I can go backwards? Caleb, is this a trust issue? I think it's a trusting God issue. I think that many conservative Christians and evangelical Christians at their root— they would not admit this publicly, but I think that the frustration with how society is, they can write it off on uh, the sinful nature of human beings. They can write it off on, well, this is just how society is. But deep down inside, the effort to either rage and battle against a broken society or the effort to fully surrender, I think it really is a product of frustration with God. I think it's frustration that God is not doing what they want. I think it's frustration that God is not moving in the direction that they want. And so their effort to fight against society or their effort to just sweep everything underneath the rug and go along with what society is doing, I think that that's really, in, in a way, us trying to uh, resolve this tension, this uncomfortable tension that we're in. And I think it's our effort to try to take back control from God. Again, not everybody would agree with me on this, but I think that many Christians have more frustrations against God than what they're willing to admit to. I think you may have hit the mother load there. Um, I really do. What would you say to someone who just got owned by what you just said, that they don't trust God? Or, I mean, sure, yeah. Objectively, they trust God. They've trusted Jesus with their life. They intellectually believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, you know, all the omnis, he's all that. But they look at the world and they go, I just don't think you're in control anymore. I mean, big macro, yes, but like, then why the country? Why my community? Why, why this? How do you navigate that spiritually, Caleb? I would say the reason why people don't trust God in the North American continent is because it's very hard to depend on God. And how can you trust someone you're not depending on? I mean, you think about it real quick. People, and I'm not bashing the American church here, but people in other countries, in third world countries, literally have to depend on God every day of their life for their livelihood, for their food, for everything. And people who are in persecuted countries have to depend on God for the sake of the church and for being able to meet and so on and so forth. And what in the world do we have to depend on God here for today? You can go to McDonald's and get a hamburger for 60 cents or something, less than a buck. You can, you can go and get a soda for a buck and get as much as you want. I mean, e even if we don't have money here, there's plenty here. And so it becomes hard to depend on God. And I think the reason why we have so much trouble with trusting God is because we're not fully depending on God. And I think that the way that we have to depend on God here in the North American continent 
is through other means because we do have mm-hmm. so much materialism. But you know what? I can depend on God for the ability to be grateful. I can depend on God for him to empower my character. I can depend on God for the for my willingness to be and the strength to be generous. I can depend on God to help manage my emotions. I can depend on God for the strength to be able to forgive the unforgivable and love the unlovable. There are many ways in which we can depend on God here. But until we really start thinking through how are we depending on God, we never will. One thing that I've started doing, Carrie, is that every single day when I wake up, I will write down three to five things that I'm grateful for before I start my day. And then at the end of the day, I'll write down three lessons I've learned, three wins I've had, and three more, three to five more things I'm grateful for. And I've been doing this since Christmas Eve. Hmm. And I just have a huge list of things that I'm grateful for. And I found that as I keep on naming the things I'm grateful for in my life and the lessons I'm learning, I've found that my dependence and the reality of the presence of God in my life has actually grown. That's cool. So I think we need to depend on God. No, I think that's a really good word. One of my personal disciplines is, you know, the light bulb went on for me uh, about a year or so ago, maybe longer, where I realized I just and we just have this propensity to focus in our relationship with God on the things we can't control and ignore the things we can control. So I can't control who gets elected. I can't control what the Supreme Court rules. I can't control the economy. I can't control uh, a lot of things in life. And so we pray about all the things we can't control, and we ignore the things we can. My attitude, my heart, my generosity, my gratitude, my the way I am around the house, how I am with my team, what I think about, my thoughts. Like, And so I've been trying to focus in my prayer life less on what I can't control and more on what I can control. And uh, I just I just think that's extremely helpful. And I think you're, you're onto some great insights. Let's go to politics for a minute. Um, politics is a huge dividing line. We are very, very divided in the West. I mean, you can see this in Europe. You can see this. The, the right is moving further right. The left is moving further left. But you make the argument that we need to honor our political leaders regardless, like no matter what. How do you honor your leaders when you completely disagree with them and and think that they're just wrong? Well, I think a, a great answer would be how in the world did Peter and Paul have the audacity to tell the first century Christians to honor Nero? Yeah. I mean, isn't Peter the one who said, honor the emperor, mm-hmm. respect the emperor? Isn't 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 Paul the one that said, respect those in authority for God has given them the sword for a reason? I mean, whether we like it or not, the people who are in office now, as frustrating as they might be, hold no comparison, no candle to Nero, whether you don't like whoever's in office. And so I think in a sense, we've really become spoiled. Um, There's really a sense of entitlement to where we think, okay, I've got to have just this perfect leader. I've got to have this great leader. And you look at the Old Testament, and there were a lot of leaders that God allowed to be in office that were not aligned with him. And when people disobeyed those leaders, God still disciplined those people because when we disobey those who are in leadership, unless they're pulling us directly away from God, when we disobey those in leadership, it is like an assault on the character of God. 
because God has his plan that he's laid out. And it says he says in uh, Psalm 75, in Daniel 2.21, more or less, he says that I'm the one who sets up kings, and I'm the one who raises them up. I'm the one that takes them down. God is the one that has society and the plan and everything laid out from beginning to end. And when we end up fighting against that and dishonoring our leaders, we're actually dishonoring God. And so that's why I think you cannot like the person. That That's fine. I mean, there are people that you and I don't like, Carrie, but what you don't have the right to do is to be disrespectful towards the position. That's what you don't have the right to do. You don't really have the right to do that to anyone because when we decided to follow Jesus, we gave up our right to be disrespectful, bitter, unforgiving, and we gave up our right to get even. Let's talk about um, politics, and again, ignore the background noise, but uh, politics in the pulpit. So I saw this huge expose. It was either in the New York, it might have been the New York Times. I think it was the New York Times. It was New York Times or USA Today. Big difference, but um, a major national paper. And it was um, a rather empathetic, long piece about an African-American woman who was part of this large megachurch that was making progress in terms of racial integration. And there was an endorsement that happened in the last presidential election from the pulpit. And basically, all the African-Americans left the church. She can't find a church. What happens, like, what is your take in this hopelessly, or not hopelessly, we're, I, I take that back, but in this very divided world where we're like, I got to come out in favor of, and, you know, some people would be Republican, 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 others are like, no, Democrat, Democrat, depends what state you're from, what city you live in, blah, blah, blah. You know, God is a Republican, God is a Democrat, God hates this, God loves this. Um, you know, and in Canada, we're a little less political than that, but... Um, what is your take on that? What does that do or undo um, to your leadership? Well, I don't think God is a Republican or a Democrat because I don't think either party has the mind of Christ. Mm. I don't think Republicans do. I don't think the Democrats do. My mom and I got in this conversation not too long ago where she said, you know, Caleb, the Democratic Party really is the party that has the heart for the gay and lesbian community. And my answer was, no, they don't. She's like, what do you mean? Yes, they do. And I said, are you kidding? No, they don't. I said, Mom, the reason why they have a heart for the gay and lesbian community is because the Democratic Party sees them and they are leveraging their relationship with them to get votes. And there are Republicans that leverage things against the gay and lesbian community so they can get votes. One party makes them victors so they can get votes. The other one makes them villains so they can get votes. The only person that is for the gay and lesbian community is Jesus Christ. That's the only person. And so I think we've reached a, a point in our country where, at least down here in America, neither party has the mind of Christ. They have become so extreme. I mean, I think this election just showed the extremism. I mean, the two most popular candidates, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, I think Bernie in many ways was much more popular than Hillary, whether they want to admit it or not. I mean, both of them were not career politicians. They were new. They were nonconformists. They spoke their mind. They were older. They didn't care what people thought. And I think that's why they were so attractive to people in America. But they were also both extremists. And so I don't think that us taking that extremist position about uh, man-made politics 
in the pulpit or in the church is very helpful. Um, again, I think that we can stand for values and political values that might be honored in scripture, but you can do that without endorsing a candidate. You can do that. You can reframe it and you can talk about what's important and how to uh, talk about things in a way that doesn't alienate people and doesn't promote or endorse a candidate. Um, so hmm. I don't, I, I don't see God endorsing too many candidates in the new Testament. That's just me. I mean, Nero I just for don't emperor. See, yeah. Nero for emperor. Even when the new Testament talks about uh, King Agrippa or Herod, it, it's really not that flattering. So I, I don't, I don't see that. I think we need to be careful of that. And unfortunately, uh, the people who left that church, that's just difficult. Because obviously that pastor was doing something right to uh, create more multi-ethnicity within his church, which is a brilliant picture of heaven. But when you take an individual and promote an individual from the pulpit, you're always going to drive people away. That's why I think it's more important to stick with values and principles than it is with individuals. Some people would say, great, thank you. I'm just indifferent. Like, you know what? So what? I'm just going to shrug my shoulders, wash my hands, walk away, and I'm going to kind of just embrace apathy or indifference. What's your response to that, Caleb? I would say that indifference always leads to pain. Indifference uh, makes you useless. Um. Indifference is the opposite of compassion, whereas I think uh, empathy is the opposite of shame. I think compassion is the opposite of indifference because indifference is, oh, I don't really care. I'm going to focus on me. Right. But I think a simple definition for compassion is really two words. Everyone matters. Hmm. That's what when you're compassionate, here's what you're saying. Everyone matters. And if you're indifferent, you just have a, not, a lot of knowledge and you know what's going on, but you don't believe everyone matters. That's why knowledge without compassion leads to pain. I really think that's what indifference is. Indifference is knowledge without compassion. And if we really want to be more compassionate and fight that indifference inside of us, I think we have to learn to despise injustice. We have to allow our heart to break. We have to continually ask God, what is the specific purpose he wants us to accomplish this year, today, this month, this week, whatever it is. I think this indifference is really hurting our society. I think that indifference is saying I matter over everyone else. Compassion is saying everyone matters. So hence, back to option C or three, invest in society with empathy and conviction. And I think what you're saying is lead with empathy. Yes, lead with empathy. Again, empathy is not affirming what someone has decided to do or affirming what they did that has got them in the consequence then that they're in right now. Empathy is being willing to walk alongside another person. Empathy is believing in who they are, but also in who they can be in Jesus. Hmm. I think empathy is what um, Matthew 5, 38 through 48 is all about. It's the most challenging passage in the entire Bible. And it's what empathy is all about, where Jesus says, refuse to get even, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? It's what Paul is trying to say in Romans 12, 9 through 18. 
especially verse 18 when he says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so my love and peace for another person, according to Jesus and Paul, is dependent on me, not them. So you mentioned John and Marla. Who, where are some other examples? Who are some other people that you think are doing this really well, like leading with empathy and conviction, investing in society that way? There's a couple that I know at a church I used to serve at that has started an after-school program where they take uh, kids who are in lower-income housing who usually would end up going home and being by themselves and being around bad influences they have created a space at a church where they can go and pick up these kids and bring them to church and help them with their homework and help them until their parents are ready for them to come home. That's an example of somebody that I think is leading with empathy uh, in society. And I think they're an example, just like John and Marla are an example of uh, people that can do anything. I mean, if you're a living human being, you can make a difference yeah. with whatever is what we do. Um, there are many examples of people who are leading with empathy, who are taking stands in our in our uh, country. Uh, people that you and I would both agree with. You know, I think um, Andy Stanley is one. Well, I think he leads with empathy uh, when it comes to church and when it comes to trying to create an environment that unchurched people love to attend. I think that's leading with empathy. Um, there's still a church of believers, but they are intentional about unchurched people who are attending their church, um, I think that's leading with empathy. Okay, so we talked about kids, we talked about Andy. I want to give you like a real-world hypothetical. You've got this like deadbeat friend slash relative brother-in-law, cousin, you know, sister-in-law, whoever, and or sister, brother, you know, but uh, they uh, use drugs recreationally, sexually, their habits are all over the place. Uh, they're undisciplined financially. They don't take good care of themselves. They're not particularly nice to people. And they just drive you crazy on a regular... And plus, they have extremist political views that are not very well informed. All right? There's the picture. Um, how do you invest in them with empathy and conviction? It sounds like these are people you might need to invest in from a distance, number one. Uh, okay, so there are boundaries. Well, yeah, I think boundaries are important. Um I think that a boundary is protecting you and others around you because when it comes to boundaries, you and I get what we either create or allow and boundaries mm. kind of protect that. And so I think there are some people that have toxicity in their life where we have to set boundaries around them so that no, we they're, don't. They're not toxic. They're not toxic. They're not harming you. They're just difficult to be around. They're making a, a series of unfortunate choices. Well, I would say this then, allow difficult people in your life because they make you more like Christ. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. When we kick difficult people out of our life for being difficult, we are running away from an opportunity to be made more like Jesus. And I think wow. that's one thing that Scripture says over and over again, especially Romans 12, 9 through 18, that we have to allow difficult people in our lives. And that doesn't mean that we always have to put up with shenanigans. That doesn't mean that we don't um, state our mind from time to time. But it, I think that's really more than anything a commitment that we have to make time and time again to not kick this person out of our lives. Now, maybe there are some people that we do need to kick out of our lives for one reason or another. 
But people like this are individuals that we should not kick out of our life because there is still a chance that we can be a good influence, that God can use us to be an influence in their life. Hmm. <laughs> and you can extrapolate that and say, and that's also our culture. That's not just your relative, not just your friend, not just your neighborhood. That's also uh, where we live. All right, I want to wrap up with this. Um, Acts 17, Paul's in Athens, foreign culture. He doesn't agree with 90% of what's happening, but there's some principles there that can help us understand how to trust the God of tomorrow with the world of today. Yeah, I look at Acts 17, and I see that our world is heading there more and more and more. Um, I think that we live in a time where we're seeing a generation rise up that has no Christian background whatsoever. They have hardly any religious background, um, and they really have their own ideas on everything. And yet you look at how Paul engaged the Sanhedrin in Acts 22, how he engaged the philosophers in Acts 17, and it's completely different. It's kind of like how Jesus was different in engaging Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And I think that a lot of Christians today, I don't know if you would agree or not, I think a lot of Christians today would hear Paul's sermon for the first time and would accuse him of being quote-unquote seeker-sensitive, because he doesn't even get to Jesus until the end of the sermon. Yeah, Like, the whole sermon is about, you know, leading up to Jesus— and then he gets to the very end, and he set everything up to introduce them to Jesus. But you look at how, how Paul really uh, engages them. Number one, he knows their society. It shows us that Paul is a student of culture. As much as he's a student of, of Judaism, of, of Christ, of scriptures, and of Roman law, he's also a student of Stoic philosophers. I mean, Stoic philosophers, that, that's a hard group. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but that's that's what that's one of the, the groups of philosophers that George Lucas based Yoda and the Jedi off of. Did not know that. Of course you would know that, Caleb. But of course I, I would. did not. Of course you I'm would. I'm reading a book right now called Star Wars and Philosophy. But yeah, so I mean the Stoic philosophers were a hard group. And so when Paul calls them ignorant, I don't think that Paul it was being mean. I think he was trying to get them to lean in. Because a mm. philosopher's worst nightmare is not to know truth. And so when he says, you're ignorant of the truth, everybody's going to lean in in that moment. And he has their captured attention. And so we see him being a student of society. He's not an isolationist, as you were just kind of talking about. He's somebody who makes people lean in. He doesn't try to make the Bible relevant, but he shows them how it mm. is relevant to everyday society. He's intentional in the words that he uses. I mean, there are just so many ways in which he's able to communicate the gospel in a unique way because he understands the context of the people he's speaking to. We'd see more movement in the North American continent if we operated by those same principles. And we began studying people as much as we do theology, ministry, and leadership. But that won't happen, going back to what we were talking about, until we become more empathetic. Otherwise, will end up being orthodox in our theology, but we're going to commit heresy by the way how we treat others or the way that we're indifferent towards others. That's good, man. The book is called God of Tomorrow, How to Overcome the Fears of Today and Renew Your Hope for the Future. Caleb, where can people find you online? And then obviously, where can they get the book? The book is actually out today, May 15th. So if you're listening to this after May 15th, 
or today it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere where books are sold. Available via audiobook, ebook, paperback. So I encourage you to go out and get it. Um, support my children's college fund. But the other thing you can do is you can go to my website, which is liveintention.com, and that's L-I-V-E-I-N, and then tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N.com. And I talk more about these things and have some information on maybe how I can be helpful and uh, other resources are on there. That is amazing, Caleb. I'm very, very grateful for you. And uh, just thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your leadership. And thanks for being a voice to help us navigate challenging times. Appreciate you. Appreciate you too, man. Love you. Man, don't you love Caleb's heart? I love how he has an ability just to bring different sides together, which he's done in the whole LGBTQ community discussion and he's doing now with culture. We're giving away 10 copies of his new book, God of Tomorrow. Would love for you to be a winner. Here's how to do it. Just head on over to my Facebook page. The links are in the show notes, carrynewhoff.com slash episode 192. But links are in the show notes to my Facebook page, or you can just find it directly on Facebook. And uh, you'll see the instructions on how to win there. So you can win one of 10 copies. We'll pick a winner later the week of release. My team will do that. And we got a fresh episode dropping next Tuesday. And Clay Scroggins is back on the podcast. Man, this is a conversation I have been so excited about um, because we're going to talk about the digital disruption and how it's changing everything for churches and businesses. Clay and I have had a number of conversations offline about this. I love it. He's thinking about things that a lot of people aren't. And uh, well, here's an excerpt. Who are we after? Who do we really want? Who, who do we have the most success with. And for us, it's the 36-year-old dad of two. We call him Successful Steve. He loves the appearance of success, but internally he's got all kinds of questions about his worth and his value. And he feels like a failure because his wife's kind of annoyed because he's not the spiritual leader that she wants him to be. But yet she wants him to party on the weekend, but be, you know, Andy Stanley during the week. And <laughs> making great money, but he has no margin because he just spends it all. He's got no great financial practices. So he's just got a lot of, he's got a low grade anger. He's got, he's got a drinking problem because it's how he copes. And he, I mean, that guy, there are thousands and thousands of that guy in our community and we can get our message in front of that guy. We don't have to wait for that guy to get to us. So that's next week, subscribers. You get that absolutely for free. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. And if this episode's been helpful, share it with a friend and even maybe leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, check out designcrowd.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and uh, you'll get a VIP offer for your next design project. And if you haven't yet signed up, for theartofbetterpreaching.com on the wait list. Do that. That drops next month. I'm so excited about helping you take your communication to the next level. It's a brand new course that Mark Clark and I are offering that I'd love for you to get in on the ground floor of theartofbetterpreaching.com. Hey guys, thanks for listening. You guys are amazing. Back next Tuesday with a fresh episode and we'll talk to you then. In the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.